Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNDW. FNDW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast, Everyday Nonviolence, where we explore the ideas and concepts of active nonviolence and the ideals of pacifism and their interplay with real life situations. I'm your host. Diane Sandberg. Our guest today is Rick Juliuson. Rick became the executive director of the Minnesota State Horticultural Society last July, and since then he has been working with the board and staff to articulate its mission and focus in a way that is clearly aligned with pressing issues like climate change, poverty, and food insecurity. Thank you for joining us, Rick. I know that you've charted a very interesting career path, and could you talk a little bit about some of the work you did before joining the Minnesota State Horticultural Society? Sure. It's kind of a twisting, winding tale, and it's very much a tale of privilege of a middle-class, educated, white Canadian male who's had the opportunity to forge a path very deliberately. After, after I graduated from my undergrad, I spent a year and a half traveling the world, including helping run an orphanage in, in Guatemala, Casa Guatemala, and hitchhiking across Africa. And then after graduate school, I ended up at Jubilee Partners, a nonprofit farm in Georgia, working with refugees from Croatia and Vietnam. And then from there, I made the connections to join Habitat for Humanity, that ended up being a seven year commitment in a number of countries in Africa, working with grassroots housing development. And what happened next? I fell in love online in the era of You've Got Mail. And through that eventually ended up back in Texas with the woman who is still my wife and love of my life, starting our family. And I worked with a nonprofit that provided access to computers and technology in public spaces, in libraries and uh, nonprofit organizations. And then after 9-11, we felt called to move back to Canada to be in, a, in my home country and also close to my parents. And there I got a job with an international nonprofit supporting schools in Kenya. So I was back and forth to Africa once again uh, doing development work there. And then where did the jump happen to become interested in growing things? That, that is what happened next. At that time in our life, we became locavores. And so we were committed to only eating food with growing within 100 miles of ourselves. And then the next logical step from that was to become food producers. And so I actually left that career and became a stay-at-home dad and writer, and we bought a seven-acre farm on Vancouver Island in a smaller community. 
discovered that none of those professions pays very well. So I also became a consultant and substitute teacher and the things farmers do to actually pay the real bills. Um, but I had never really grown anything before then and just found a deep love for the natural rhythms that comes with farming of waking up before sunrise and being out there and weeding for an hour as the sun came up and finally warmed me up and then going inside and cooking breakfast for my children and taking them to school. It was a, a very slow and meaningful transition that has followed me through the rest of my life and career. So then what brought you to Minnesota? Uh, Mr. route. Um, we had always planned on helping our children understand there's more to the world than just our little bubble in Canada. So we moved to Costa Rica to the cloud forests of Monteverde, where I had the honor of serving as the co-head co of school, co-director of the Quaker school there. And that was just three years of living in rural paradise with clouds sweeping right through our house or our classrooms and hiking in the cloud forest every day. And then our children wanted to graduate from American high schools with the marching bands and the debate club and the varsity teams and all the opportunities we couldn't give them in a remote mountaintop village. So we moved to Minnesota where I continued as head of school at the Friends School here. So it was an opportunity to, to expose them to yet another culture because Minnesota is a very different culture than Vancouver had been for them. And then most recently, I transitioned to this new role as executive director of the Minnesota State Horticultural Society. And I also, on um, one night a week, work with Face to Face, uh, which is running a youth emergency shelter for homeless youth. You really had such a varied life and career. Do you think you'd be able to pick a favorite part of your journey? I think each of those places was my favorite at the time that it was happening. When you have moved locations and jobs and passions and communities as much as I have, you, you have to just appreciate where you are at each time. I loved being a farmer. I loved working in Africa. I love living in the cloud forest. And truly, I love being in Minnesota. There's so much opportunity and so much meaning in my life right now. So the basic answer to that would be right now. And hopefully any time in my life you ask me that question, that will be my answer. What a truly amazing journey. And what do you hope that that past will bring to your leadership role with the Horticultural Society? I mean, the past has taught me so much. I've, I've worked in different industries and like causes, education and sustainable farming and um, environment. And all of that weaves into the work we do at the society. It's taught me how to respect people with different life experiences and perspectives and just recognize all the gifts that we can bring when we truly sit at the table together. It's taught me that we do best when we're in a place where we're following our passions. You know, when, when we're truly in, in the place that we feel called and motivated. And I mean, not everyone will want to be with this society. Not everyone will want to work with the school. We all have to find the place where we fit best and that's where we do our best work. So I think I bring that breadth of experience and perspective that makes me more effective and a better listener and better leader. And those are certainly very important skills in a leader, as you said. 
And what changes do you envision bringing to the horticultural society, both in the short term and in the longer term? Well, first of all, I want to say being a leader of a school is an incredible honor and also an incredible workload. And you make a huge impact in the lives of those students and their families. And hopefully they go on to make the world a better place. But I was feeling called to work in a job that more immediately worked with the broader range of people in the community and have more immediate impact. And so that's what I was looking for. And I envisioned probably working with a shelter or a, I applied at a battered woman's um, nonprofit, something that we would tend to think of as front lines. And I, I didn't see the horticultural society that way. It wasn't until I researched it more and thought about how it aligns with my own past as a farmer, as an activist, that I could see the connections. And so I could see that the impact is huge. We work with, we have over 9,000 members and over 13,000 people who receive our Northern Gardener magazine. So right away we have a voice and you know, a, an opportunity to to show different ways and different perspectives. I, I started putting he, him at the end of my email address and people noticed and people wrote and said, what is that? People who weren't aware of that particular identifier. And so, you know, just, that was just a little way that I could have a, a very profound impact, I think. And then I could also see that the Hort Society meets society, some people's immediate needs for food security, the opportunity to grow, mental health benefits, community needs that, especially during this pandemic, have been so front and center. And so the work we're doing in helping people have access to food, the chance to grow, the chance to be together is, is immediately important in meeting needs that are right now. And then we're also addressing longer term needs around environment, climate change, racial justice, land justice, and so those are things, your question was, what do I want to change? Those are things I, I don't want to change, I want to build on. You know, we're a, we're a 155 year old society. We're one year older than the country I was born in. And we're going to be around for another 155 years. And I want to see us continue to grow and deepen in how we meet immediate needs of the community and how we keep our eyes on the longer term needs and opportunities that we have. Food is so basic. Growing is so basic. It's a fundamental to our health as a, as a community, as individuals. Being more specific, some of the things we're working on right now are we're developing a resource hub, um, which is an online platform. And it's there right now. If you go to our website, northerngardener.org slash resource, resources or resource hub, one or the other. It's a place where we want people to be able to go and find the resources they need to be better gardeners, to know how to connect to the growing community. So it, it'll be a primarily a free resource that you can just go and find articles, recordings, links to other organizations, maps of community gardens, how to find a mentor through Master Gardeners or Snap-on-Ed. So that, that's one way that we're trying to to broaden our impact and bring it, make it more accessible to more people right now. We have some great programs that we're trying to expand and really target underserved communities. And that includes Garden in a Box, which provides all the materials and resources and instruction for people to start a small container garden, uh, very often at schools or community centers. 
Minnesota green. We take uh, plants that weren't sold at nurseries or by growers and repurpose them and get them back out to community gardens and nonprofits. And we're working really hard on diversity is another issue we're looking at. And that refers not just to race. Uh, we are a predominantly white organization right now. And so we're, we're, we're not serving African-American or Hmong populations or Spanish speaking. There's so many different populations who are great growers, have great traditions of growing and that we can become allies with and learn from and share our resources. And just all of us will grow from that kind of work, but not just race, also age. And we need a new generation of growers. And so we're actively looking at how can we attract these younger growers, especially who in the past year have woken up to the excitement and the need to grow. It's a huge opportunity. There's a whole generation of new growers. So for example, we've just produced an eight page booklet that will come out in our May, June issue of Northern Gardener that's expressly directed for new gardeners. The very basics of how to plant a garden, how to start, what materials you need, how to make it affordable, where to find more help. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in the short term and the long term that we're all really excited about. Yeah, I know that when uh, we were first talking about the Horticultural Society, I, like many others, I think about the master gardening program and growing primarily flowers, you know, kind of a, a more decorative garden, but you're really shifting more towards a more practical gardening, focusing more on producing food instead of just something beautiful for the eyes. I, I would say yes and, which is how we should always respond to things. <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's an immediate need for more food and, and always a need. And the racial inequity of food growing and distribution is very clear. I also grow flowers. My farm of Vancouver Island, we had a market garden of peonies and we sold them at our flower stand and to wedding decorators. My garden here, we're uh, planting a lot of pollinator friendly gardens. And my wife and I started a little free flower stand in the front of our house where we're growing flowers in the alley and we're picking them each day and putting them in cups and people come by and take them. And people even come by sometimes and add flowers to it from their own gardens to give away. So it's it's become a real com a community focused place. And um, three of my neighbors and myself were all digging up our boulevards and putting in native grasses and pollinator friendly plants and you know, doing what we can for the environment that way. And it's become a feature that people have told me they deliberately walk by our sidewalk and then our alley to enjoy what we're growing. So beauty is important. This world needs beauty. And in a year where we've been stuck inside and isolated, the chance to get out and appreciate something is really important. So I want to build on our reputation and strengths as a grower of beauty and bring more focus also to the food side of it. Food for the soul while growing a community within nature. There we go. Beautiful. And as a Quaker, you've been steeped in the principles of nonviolence. And could you talk a little bit about how those principles have impacted your personal and your professional life? Yeah, for me, I mean, as a Quaker, we have several core beliefs. But for me, the most important is uh, equality. And I, or we as Quakers, define that as 
every person has that of God inside them or the divine spark or a basic human value. And when you look at every person you meet in that way, how, how can you cause violence to them? And I don't just mean walking up and punching them in the face. I also mean, how can I abide by the fact that African-Americans are more likely to die from the pandemic or certain populations have lower wages or less access to food or it's hotter in poorer parts of town than it is in the nicer part of town that I live in because there's not as many parks and green spaces. You know, those are all forms of violence. And so the work we're doing at the Hort Society, as well as the work I try to do in my personal life, is trying to address all those systems of violence. In the first bit of time, as you've started off in the Horticultural Society, in your new role, getting to know people, can you think of any interactions that you've had with the members there, with the staff, with any of your partner organizations that really well illustrate some of the shifting priorities there? Right now, we have several adopted plots at the State Fair. In partnership, we care for a rose garden and other types of growing. And they're quite small, but together they form an area. And we're in the process of re-envisioning how to use that space. And a couple of the ways that maybe we're looking at it differently before is we're looking at how can we use this truly to educate fairgoers and people at other times of the year who use the grounds. How can we educate them about something? And so we're looking at perhaps pollinator gardens because that's an area that there's a lot of interest right now and a lot of need for people to just hands-on understand how beautiful they can be, how easy they can be to maintain and the impact they have. So perhaps we'll use that space to educate people about pollinators. Another idea is to use the space to educate people about um, native plants or about culturally relevant plants for different groups who live here in Minnesota. So that's one difference, I think, is that we're really looking at it as an educational opportunity in addition to being a place of beauty and a place of respite at the State Fair. Another is we realize that one of the reasons we have this opportunity as a society is that we've been around for 155 years and we're well connected to the government and we're well respected in the community and we're predominantly white and all the things that show our privilege. We as a society are an incredibly privileged society and that's given us that opportunity. So how can we leverage that, that privilege? How can we leverage this opportunity and work as allies with other groups who don't have that same type of privilege and opportunity. So we're looking to see how can we do this in partnership with another organization who could truly use that physical space and the resources that we have access to, to promote the good work they're doing. We don't have to be the ones who go in and plant an, a, a traditional Asian garden to show Asian growing techniques and Asian food if that were a direction we were going. We could partner with the Karen Growers Association or another organization that is led by people from that culture, led by BIPOC folks, and give them the opportunity that we've been given, but share it with them and together in partnership, develop that space to help them accomplish their goals and our mutual goals of education in the community. So we're coming to understand 
that we have privilege and power that we can leverage in an allied relationship with other groups. Uh, it makes sense to use your already loud voice to amplify others like that. To go back to something that you said in the first part, can you give me an example of a culturally relevant plant? I'm curious about that. We discovered a plant growing in one of our community gardens that none of us recognized. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the name. I want to say something like butter bomb, or I, I cannot remember. That's how ignorant I am as a white grower. But we, we dug it up or took photos and showed it around. And um, some friends from the East African community and also from the Hmong community, they both recognized it and said, we love that. And they told us how they, how they grow it and how they cook it at home. And they were very excited that that was growing in the community garden. So it's now something we realized that we should make available when, when we're passing around plants, you know, distributing uh, seeds or plants as an option for community growers. And if I had learned better, I would tell you what the name of it is. But I do know that there's this mystery plant out there that we thought just accidentally grew and for them was very culturally relevant and something they want in their gardens. Oh, that's, that's such an exciting opportunity to really get that firsthand, you know, hands-on learning opportunity about another culture. That's so cool. So since you're reaching out to more groups and want more people to become involved in the organization, how would you recommend people start off kind of joining in your mission or learning more about the Horticultural Society? Well, one easy way is to go to our resource hub. As I said, it's a, it's a free online platform where you can access the information you want. And if you can't find it, you can contact us and we'll see if we can resource it for you. A second way, of course, is to become a member and you can join at the society membership level or you can just subscribe to our Northern Gardener magazine. But as a member, that gets you discounts to our webinars and events. And we have a bi-monthly email newsletter that's got such good information about what you should be doing in your garden today and what's happening in the community. So that's a second way. And the third is, as I've been saying throughout this interview, we're wanting to partner with more organizations. So if you belong to an organization that could work well in allyship with us, we'd be very open to learning about how we can support the work that other organizations are doing. And most important, get out and start gardening. <laughs> you, know? you don't have to own a big backyard. And we're really trying in our resources to show how you can grow something in your living room window. In fact, my dining room window, we've put a whole old door up on two cabinets and it's filled with seedlings right now. And then in our backyard, we've got seedlings growing in old milk jugs. Because I took a winter seed sowing workshop through the Minnesota State Horticultural Society, we have 40 milk jugs out there right now with baby sprouts growing in them that will then transplant. So there's opportunity to grow anywhere. There's community gardens. You know, if you don't have access to anywhere to grow, join a community garden and get out there. But whether it's through us or not, we want people to be growing and sharing what they grow. Yeah, I've been going to ask about that too. Most So much gardening happens in the spring and the summer. How does the Horticultural Society, how do you work on or further your agenda during the cold, during the fall and the winter months? As a farmer, I discovered there's not much of an off season. When I actively farmed for seven years, you're harvesting. I was farming in Vancouver Island in British Columbia on the West Coast. So our, 
our harvesting season went late into the fall and then you're preserving and then you're taking care of your equipment and sharpening your shovels and then suddenly it's time to start ordering your seeds and starting your seedlings for next year. There wasn't much breathing time, maybe right around Christmas, New Year's. Um, as a society, we're on the same kind of cycle. As we wind down the year, we do a lot of evaluation. Did we, did we truly serve our community? In what ways could we do it better? And how does that feed into our planning for next year? Through the winter months, especially in Minnesota, people are hungry to think about anything other than snow and cold. So we're offering webinars, you know, let's start thinking about your garden next year. Let's reminisce about your garden last year. Let's talk about um, how you preserve food and now how you're cooking that great food that you grew last year. And so we continue to educate ourselves and build community through the winter months. But as you noted, right now is when we're really ramping up in the springs when everyone's itching to get out in their garden. And in fact, we're telling people, don't, don't cut everything down quite yet. You know, it's still good to leave last year's plants standing a little bit longer because nature needs them out there. But by all means, be ordering your seeds, be growing them indoors and be getting ready. It's going to be a great growing season. It is. I, I confess, I already had to scold my husband not to go out and rake all our leaves quite yet to give our pollinators a chance to wake up and get ready for the spring as well. Yeah. Well, that was all the questions we had for you, Rick. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Just that at the end of a very difficult year and moving into what's going to continue to be a very challenging time, we're not through this pandemic and we're waking up to, a lot of us are waking up to racial inequity that others have known about and suffered from for so long. There's a lot of work to be done. The horticultural society and gardening in general has been a bright spot. It's been a chance for people to be out with their hands in the earth and the, the mental and physical health benefits of that are, are documented, but we also just feel them in our bones. People have come together. They've started growing giving gardens. I mean, they've, they've dedicated whole garden plots just to bring to the food bank or to their church or to wherever they distribute the food or to their neighbors directly. People have been able to be outside together at a time where it hasn't been safe to be together in many ways. But being at a community garden or in my backyard and talking to my neighbor next door in her backyard, that's still community that we're so hungry for. So in in a very difficult time, I, I believe that gardening and the work at our society is, is so important and so valued right now. It gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Healing, healing and growing both in the earth and in each other. Rick, we very much appreciate your time today. Good luck to you and the Horticultural Society, and we look forward to hearing more about your progress. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, please visit our website, fnvw.org, or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest 
and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNBW, its staff, or board of directors.